the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching Jim Henson's 1986 fantasy adventure film, Labyrinth. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Labyrinth, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Some movies provide their characters with a set of words that will transport them home to safety. There's no place like home. Some movies provide their characters with a set of words that make a man with bees in his mouth appear behind you. Candyman. Candyman. Can it's okay, we'll only say that twice, as it still gives me the creeps. Some movies, however, provide their characters with the means to get rid of their baby brother because they're having a teenage hissy fit because they didn't want to babysit and one of their teddy bears has been moved off its shelf. I wish the goblins would come and take you away. Right now. Did you say That kind of scenario could perhaps only be the outcome when you mix one of the creators of Monty Python, The Muppets, Star Wars and Ziggy Stardust. You're reminding us a baby. Ah, Labyrinth. Jennifer Connolly, David Bowie, and the trademark Henson puppetry, and a bog of eternal stench. What more do you want? No, your majesty, not the eternal stench. Well, according to a good percentage of critics, a whole lot more. Roger Ebert, who we just love to quote, said that Labyrinth never really comes alive. Writing for the Chicago Tribune, me neither, Gene Siskel was less than impressed, declaring it was an awful film with a pathetic story. It's not fair! That's right, it's not fair! <laughs> but make no mistake, those that love this film, love this film. They love it for the things it gets right, but also believe it's somehow stronger for the things it gets wrong. And it takes a special kind of alchemy to produce such a thing. You don't by any chance know the way through this labyrinth, do you? Oh, me? Nah, I'm just a worm. It's been noted in the IMDb trivia section, <laughs> where else, that every time a character in Labyrinth says, it's a piece of cake, something bad happens shortly after. It's a piece of cake! Now, here on Spoiler, we aren't superstitious in the slightest and would never accept that things could go wrong just because someone says certain words in a certain order, because after all, the one thing we know is that making radio shows and podcasts, well, it's a piece of cake. Hello? Where are you? Later in the show, we'll take a look at the legacy of the great Jim Henson. But first, joining me here in the studio to get Series 7. Seven of Spoiler. <laughs> Grooving is someone with an enchanted apple tree in a garden, Rachel Burnett. Hello. And there's a gag you can make up about yourself about bogs of eternal stenches and our <laughs> lovely Andy Goulding, who I can tell you smells Delicious. <laughs> Hello. So the thing is, this next sentence I'm about to say was probably the, the, the hardest thing. Since, since we've been away, and welcome back everyone, I didn't know where to go first. Where do I go first? Do we talk to Rachel, who might steer the conversation towards soundtracks? <laughs> who knows? Or Andy, who, fo who following uh, his excellent Art of Puppetry spoiler special, may well have a thing to say about that. 
Uh, Rachel, how could anyone <laughs> possibly like a film that sympathises with the girl who gives her baby brother away to a goblin king? She immediately regrets it, though, right? I mean, immediately. <laughs> it's the sort of thing you do when you're going, oh, God, I, take, I want this to happen. And then it happens, you go, oh, oh I didn't mean it. Yeah, yeah, hang on. <laughs> Bless her. So you didn't like it either, right? Oh, it's dreadful. No, I love it. <laughs> of course I love it. Um, it was one of the first films I ever saw in the cinema as well. So I, oh. I have lots of good memories attached to this film. Right, Andy, come on, you're going to be uh, opposite in this. You're going to say no, you're going to shout Rachel down. Um, we know that after your awesome Art of Puppetry spoiler special, uh, oh no! Hang on a minute. It's going to go that way as well, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I thought I took. I'd start by talking a little bit about what this film personally means to me, in that it taught me a really valuable lesson on how to be a better critic. Because I grew up loving this film when I was a kid, and uh, it was a film the whole family loved. We used to rent it from the local news agents on video, yeah. uh, and it was it was quite. I mean, there were certain ones that we rented that Mum would go out the room for, or, or Dad wouldn't be interested in. But this one, the whole family loved it, and they were gripped. And I just grew up loving it. Anyway, years later, a bit older and supposedly wiser, I started my own blog online. And I thought, right, now I've got my own blog. I have to be like these published critics that I, I encountered and that I admire. And looking at some of their reviews, I was surprised to see how negative the reviews of Labyrinth were. So I put my serious head on and I completely dismantled this film that I've loved for so long in order to construct what I thought would be a sophisticated review. And I ended up really picking away at its faults. And I think I ended up giving it about three and a half stars out of five. And I left that review there, but it never quite sat right with me. And it was always there in the back of my head that this thing was up there online. And eventually I watched the film again and I thought, what are you doing, you pretentious <laughs> moron? That is nothing like what Labyrinth means to you. Yeah, there, there are flaws, but critical assessment isn't as straightforward as just picking out the shortcomings and then deducting a few points for each of them. And what it all came down to in the end is that the film felt magical to me as a kid and it still feels magical to me today. It's still a gateway to those kind of elusive, only fleetingly accessible feelings of childhood excitement. And when I watch it now, I still smile all the way through and I sing along to the songs and I laugh at the jokes and I marvel at the amazing puppets. And that's worth more than three and a half stars. So for me, this is the ultimate illustration of how films are more than the sum of their parts. And it taught me that it takes a greater sophistication to be able to assess and explain the value of a range of different types of films relative to their context, their intent, their genre, how they age, their cultural impact. And that's the sort of critic I now aspire to be, not one who has this sort of top-down version that goes Citizen Kane at the top and then everything else <laughs> has to be judged by that. And so, apart from just loving it, I feel like Labyrinth is the film that saved me from the brink of snobbery. <laughs> Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, well done, because it does, it, it, you need those keys of emotion, don't you, I think, which, uh, which, which hopefully makes certainly our programme more human than, than a couple of others. Um, <laughs> now, it's going to be down to me then, isn't it? <laughs> You see, it's funny because I know how, <laughs> one of the things about getting back into this radio studio today has been thinking, right, okay, well, I don't, right, let's, let's straight out, straight out. I don't hate this film, right? I, I actually really like this film, but I'm nowhere near the level I, I, as I believe you two are with yeah. it, which somehow still makes me feel I'm here disappointing you. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I, I think it's just because I've not been around it. Now, there's, there's, there's a key incident in my life. Uh, that happened with this and it put me off watching uh bowie and films completely and it was uh one day and let's make let's take you back 19 
80s, 90s, whenever it was, I was playing basketball, right? And I went, I know, I know, it seems insignificant. It probably is. <laughs> I know, for some reason, I went inside the house for a drink or something like that. And my brother was watching The Man Who Fell to Earth. And then you just see the, the yellow eyes and the things like that. And that's they're frightening. Right. I completely frightened. So in my eyes, then, as whatever age I was, I can't remember exactly. So I'm not going to lie to you. Bowie in films, frightening. As in actually separate to the Bowie that I, I saw, and I think everyone has a different era of Bowie, don't they? I mean, that's the, the, the genius of the yeah. man. Uh, and for me, it was Live Aid. Live Aid was my musical awakening, if you like. And um, the Bowie performance was just, he, he turns it on just like that, puts yeah. a band together a few days before, including um, Thomas Dolby mm. uh, on the keys. And if you if you hear the Adam Buxton podcast of Thomas Dolby talking about how that came together, enlightening, absolutely enlightening. And this is at the point where we got a video recorder and we watched that. So... The singer didn't frighten me. The guy who appeared in the films <laughs> scared the living <laughs> out of me. So it, it was a case that I just always avoided this. And I have seen it. I must have seen it as an adult, unless I've seen, or I think I've definitely seen a making of, because uh, I know we talk, we, we talk about the ends and I'm going to skip to the end. You know the point when he's on the stairs and he comes back up yeah. from one of the stairs and they strap him to that thing? Yeah. I remember that vivid as, vivid as anything. I was waiting the whole film to look at that and go, I know they did that. <laughs> <laughs> so I must have seen that because there was nothing in this in here that surprised me because I've seen it all. I've seen it with, with the, the, the scary hand scenes. Mm -hmm. So all this is around, all this is swimming about. And I didn't know if I'd, I'd like to or not. Now, we spent a, an afternoon last week watching this. And I did enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny, entertaining. Rachel, let's bring you in here and steer okay. you towards music. What the hell? Why the hell not? <laughs> <laughs> Why indeed? Kurt, Mark Kermode recently, who I think, I think we're all, we're detainees, are we doing oh, some? Yeah, yeah. Is it, we're detainees. Uh, hello to Jeremy Irons. And <laughs> the, he, he was talking about, um, oh, what's that new musical out with the, Bearded lady and whatnot. What's that? Greatest Showman. Great of course, the Greatest Showman. How could I forget? Because it's everywhere. And he made the the now legendary uh, quote of saying, "There's not a memorable song in there." Right? <laughs> Which and everybody remembers. <laughs> I have. I have now spent. I spent a bit of time at uh, young people's talent shows for whatever reason, and they're just doing that song again and again and again. <laughs> the young kids, seven, eight years old, they love getting on stage and doing that, and that's just a wonderful thing to see. Um, now, for this, I actually. I don't know, maybe I need to see it again or maybe listen to the soundtrack as it is. It's, it's, got, it's obviously got a soundtrack, yeah, has it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've got it. Of course it, it has, of course yeah, it has. Yeah, so, <laughs> so do you listen to it as a standalone album? Yeah. Because for me, the songs didn't stand out. Oh, that's weird. Because if you start singing, if you say to people that have seen Labyrinth and Love It, if you just say, you remind me of the babe, just say that to them and see what happens. And the whole of the rest of the song will come out and they won't even be able to stop themselves. It's well, like some I kind actually, of Pavlov's dog thing. I did that on the spoiler uh, Facebook page. <laughs> well, no, I just, when we said we were going to do this, I just posted, you remind me of the babe on there. And did it happen? And came back, yeah. And it, like, and they're, they're taking it in turns as well. Yeah. I just, spoiler fans doing one line at a time all the way down. Oh, I love brilliant. that. Because there's sportsmanship in that as well, which yeah. I really like. But I think the songs are really memorable. I mean, the fact that I saw it when I was nine in the cinema, I actually won a competition of the Lincolnshire Echo mm. and went with my sister. And um, we came out and we were humming them. So they got into our heads. Maybe a child's brain's a little bit more spongy and we sort of remember these songs, <laughs> but they were definitely memorable to me. I mean, the fiery songs, Brilliant the Chili Down song. Is <laughs> I listen to that on the way to work because it's just such a good, It's incredibly song. chaotic it's arrangement. Like, when I was watching it and... Uh, and I, I have a soft spot for that one as well. Yeah. And, uh, it came on and I said, uh, I said to my wife, oh, this song really gets in my head. <laughs> and she sat there for a second. She went, really? Because I can't even pick out a tune. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's weird, isn't it? Maybe because we watched it as children and because our brains were spongy yes. and we're probably taking in the, the songs. It was our spongy sure brains. <laughs> is, it, is it, again, you see, I didn't dislike it at all. I was enjoying it while I was watching it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a joy now to come back. It's been sometimes a difficult thing to listen to Bowie over the last few, last year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've still not got to his last album just because. Oh. The time's not been right. The time I've never had it. I've never had it because I feel like I need to be in a room by myself. You do for yeah. that one, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With no one around, mm. in a certain mood, and just think, right, I need to accept this now. And it's almost I'll just keep pushing it away. It's oh. almost like here, if you don't it, listen it, to it, he's not dead. Ex- exactly, <laughs> no, exactly. I totally so I may, get that. I may well never listen. I'll just look at it. <laughs> um, but it was it was a, a wonderful thing to see him on the TV. Obviously having a ball. Yeah. I mean, really having a ball. And we always like to discuss who else came with this. And I think it, it, we're not breaking any ground when we talk about the names that were also mentioned with this, when we say Michael Jackson, we yeah. say Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Sting. 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 Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. Who would, well, he was susceptible. <laughs> People were wanting him to be in movies at that point, yeah. weren't they? June. You ever seen June? I've never yeah, seen June. Yeah, I've seen June. June. It's it. a mess. It is a mess, my goodness. <laughs> mm. yeah. But here's the, here's, the, here's the name that I think could have, those are, those are the names I, I can't visualise, can't see. For some reason, I can see Mick Jagger. I can. And I'm not a Jagger mm-hmm. fan, really. No, see, but pro- I can see it. The problem is, with your hypothesis, is that basically David Bowie is the Goblin King pretending to be David Bowie. <laughs> so, you know, when I, when I went to the um, his memorial wall in London, just shortly after he died, there were so many things written on this wall. And there was pens that you could write on the wall. You were allowed to do it. And there were so many people that were referencing him as the Goblin King. And I remember putting down something like, you know, you're down with the goblins or something and just because in my head he is the goblin king because that is his first at nine years old my family weren't cool as regards music they really Mm. weren't so david bowie didn't really figure in my musical education until i saw that film and so for me that was my first real look at him and i thought he's actually not acting that's that's the goblin king Mm. and when i saw him being david bowie i thought now you're just pretending because you're actually the Goblin King. And I don't think I never quite let go of that. And it gives me some comfort, so don't take away from me. Because it <laughs> okay. gives me some comfort that he's he's not actually dead. He's just gone back to the underground and it's fine. <laughs> so, But that's why I can't imagine anyone else doing it. Well, okay, I'm right. Saying, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm getting your point there. I'm, yeah. I'm, well, do you know what? I'm not going to mention that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, when I did this, like, pretentious review that I wrote, uh, and I... <laughs> I focused I on. Read that, you? <laughs> oh, definitely. First thing I'm I'm taking doing. it down. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I focused on it like like it should have been played like Olivier or something. Like it what? should have been like it should have been like a really incredible performance. And obviously he's hammy, but he's having fun with it, oh, isn't yeah. he? And so after I'd written this review, like sort of being quite critical of his performance, one of my friends said to me, "Well, who would you rather have played the Goblin King?" Mm. And I, I didn't have an answer yeah. for it. And this is what I call the Dick Van Dyke effect. <laughs> because if you watch Mary yeah, Poppins, yeah. he does that, he does that terrible accent and everyone always laughs at that terrible accent. But no one else could have done everything else that he does in that role. All the amazing kind of showmanship that he brings to it. No one could have danced like he did, but that sort of joie de vivre that, mm. he, that he brings to it and I mean I don't think Bowie's as good as Dick Van Dyke was in that role as the Goblin King but I do think that just in in his look and the way that he holds the screen and everything he, he has managed to make a potentially throwaway character iconic yeah absolutely and it's, it's really strange even like his costume and his hair and stuff which has the potential to be absolutely ridiculous. Um, and the thing is, it is absolutely ridiculous. People do cosplay of, of the Goblin King all over the world. Mm. And I have yet to see anybody pull it off. 
anybody. Really good looking chaps, really skinny chaps, all sorts of people, women sometimes, they cannot pull it off. Mm. And yet David, David Bowie just suits it. It's like, yeah, yeah, that is your real hair, isn't it? I know it's not. But you think, yeah, you <laughs> properly look like you should be wearing that. And he looks brilliant in it. Cask a really crass question. Yeah, go Did on. Did you fancy him? So, well, I was nine, but as a, as a nine-year-old can love anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yes, that totally. Way, yeah. Well, I did think I was going to marry him, so yes. Yeah, because all, all the girls that I knew really had a thing from oh Bowie goodness, and Labyrinth yeah. as yeah. well. So. Absolutely. Now, he, he was my first crush. Absolutely first crush. <laughs> yeah, he's playful isn't he in the fairy tale yeah yeah were you so i mean obviously not now maybe now i don't know um have you ever been scared at all by this film did anything scare you i mean i'm talking specifically that hand scene oh the hands helping hands come on Uh, helping hands didn't scare me at all because they did actually catch her but no i think the scariest bit for me was the very opening bit well, not the very opening bit, but the bit where the goblins came to get Toby and that bit That's in the it. cot where the, where the blanket goes, yeah. and she yeah. goes yeah. it's the bit um, where they're popping be- out behind the doors yes. behind her. That's scary. That's scary because you can see the whole body. There's something about seeing puppets with legs and feet mm. that make you go, oh, where's the hand? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's really peculiar, which they all go, they're alive. Um, but the only thing that stops it from being super scary, because it could be, is the fact that we've seen them already. And that was genius. And I only figured that out today because I thought, why wasn't I so scared? And it's because we've already seen them being silly. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, that, that stupid one that says, has she said it yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you think, they're okay. Yeah. That's okay. They haven't got sharp teeth or anything like that. They're okay. So, but that's the only reason otherwise you'd be, that you'd be out of it already. You'd be like, no, yeah. I'm not watching the rest of this. No. And that for me, actually, I mean, that, that scene brings me onto something that we talk about the, the, the puppetry a little bit. And then we're, we're definitely, I definitely want to get onto Sarah Connolly, uh, not Sarah Connolly, Jennifer. I called Jennifer. it that earlier. <laughs> is, is it Sarah? Is it character yeah. Sarah? Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Connolly, of course. Um, but what, what I found and what opened my eyes about puppetry here is that, Obviously, there's the there's the the, the big song scene, uh, but also I, I noticed it straight away in the scene where has she said it yet? We'll call it that scene. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's give it that title, right? <laughs> well, you notice that there's a lot of puppets doing different things in the background. Now, if this was a scene with human beings in it and someone was messing around like that in the background, the director would be going, "No, no, no, you know, it's like what are you doing yeah. out there." Because it's puppets, they get away with it. And it's one of these things that you can come back to a film now like this and you can come back and see a different thing yeah. each time. And this is where I'm assuming uh, the films uh, such as the uh, the Nick Park films, Wallace and Gromit films, yeah. uh, and, and lots of different things going on in the background. If this was just a human normal set, you would, your eyes would write that off and say, no, this is a mess. What on earth were they doing there? The director would never let it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in this, it's it's... A joy to watch because it can, it can happen again and again. So I can be, we can be sat in the same room and we'll both see two different things. Mm. If you look at like Hoggle, Hoggle is an incredible puppet and he still looks incredible. But like for that time, he, he was like, there was an actress called Sherry Weiser who was inside him. And then there was four puppeteers also working on him. And Brian Henson, who's Jim Henson's son, controlling 18 motors inside his face rig. And so you imagine you have, you could get into a too many cooks situation there, but this group of puppeteers work together and rehearse together for weeks to the point where they can anticipate each other's movements. And that's what really brings it to life. You don't, you don't question him for a second, do you? You just think he's wandering around. It's actually him. I've got a, uh, a very controversial statement to make, which Ooh. I bought in anticipation of it being a love-in today. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> let's come with one in the barrel. Okay, I'll, go I'll on. do my best. This one will, will definitely alienate uh, at least one person. It's <laughs> me. Okay. Okay. Uh, in my opinion, the Paddington films are just okay. <laughs> I really well, love them, but I, I know where you're going with this because okay. I would have loved 
a puppet Paddington. Yeah. I really would. And I must admit, I nearly boycotted it because it was CG. <laughs> and the only reason it gets away with it is because of Ben's voice. Well, I That's think it's very reason. well done CG as well. Yeah, it's and beautifully I think CG done. has potential to do amazing things. I think amazing things have been done with it. Mm. But there's something about a puppet that it's actually there. Yeah. So, and it's not just CG. You know how much I love hand-drawn animation. And yeah. I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But you can still see in that that occasionally Bob Hoskins is staring through mm. the drawings. And whereas with this, when a puppet's actually there and people are actually interacting with it, yeah. there's just something so magical about it. Frank Oz, who worked with Jim Henson for years, he tells an amazing story about how they used to do like sort of semi-improvised little bits for Sesame Street where there'd be a puppeteer sort of crouched down and there'd be a little kid sat next to the puppet that he was controlling. And Frank Oz said, before they started shooting, he would be crouched down and the kid would acknowledge him and know he was there. But the minute the cameras were rolling and he started controlling the puppet, it was as if he wasn't there. And the kids just talked to the puppet and looked at the puppet and interacted with it. And even though there was a man there with his hand up it, it was just completely real to them. And that, I think, comes across on screen as well. Oh, definitely. I think puppets have such amazing power to do that. And they are real. I mean, imagine there's bits in Labyrinth where the puppets are interacting so well with Sarah or Jennifer that they're messing her hair or they're pulling on bits. <laughs> yeah. so how could they? I mean, they could just about do it. But that natural sort of just the tiny nuances you just don't get with CG. No. It always looks just a little bit fake. So there is something beautiful about it. I would also say one of the reasons why the puppets would always be moving is also to make sure they always look alive. Because if you stop a puppet moving, it's going to look like a toy. It's not going to look like a living thing anymore. So they have to breathe. When when you see a puppet show live at a theatre or something, and you actually see the puppeteers moving them, because often you do it in theatre, you see them in black, and they will always be, be breathing them, be moving them slightly so that they're doing something. And obviously with Henson's um, Muppets, there was a definite house style of how they're meant to puppeteer. And that included things like, you know, flinching and, and wiping their noses and just keeping alive all the time to make sure they never look dead. They never look like toys. Mm. So that's another reason that they'll always be doing little things. But Jim was the worst at doing too much. <laughs> I, I remember a story about, I think it was possibly um, the Easter one with Ben Bunny. And um, he didn't have a major part in it. He was just sort of helping out. And I think he was doing a bit of directing. And so he wasn't a main puppeteer, but he can't help himself. Obviously, he's a puppeteer at heart, so he has to do something. And there was a scene with a lot of bunnies in it. And there was one right at the back that was really gaily jumping around. And this, <laughs> who's doing that at the back? That's really ridiculous. It's just catching our attention. And it was Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love that, that he just, he just couldn't help himself. He just had to really, you know, go for it and give yeah. him life. Yeah, I mean, referring back to Andy's brilliant interview with uh, Nigel Plaskett. Mm. Nigel Plaskett uh, on the uh, the Art of Puppetry special. Nigel Plaskett had this brilliant phrase, which I've, I've, I've heard a few times in, in different shows, uh, where he says, a bit of business. He said, there's always a bit <laughs> yeah. of time to do a bit of business. And yeah. I, th I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. Now, the world lost the wonderful, visionary Jim Henson on the 16th of May, 1990, at the tragically young age of 53. His death had a profound effect on our very own Rachel, who's been looking back at the great man's legacy. Okay, everybody, okay, okay, gather around. It's finally time for the Jim Henson tribute production number. Oh, boy, okay, all right, okay. okay. Remember, come in on the second chorus. Oh, and, yes. oh accountants, hey, don't, don't tap dance until we fly in the giant 1040 form. Oh, and uh, right. Scooter, uh, Gonzo, come on, help me with this thing. Oh, Move okay. it out of the way. Oh, wait, wait, ho, 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 ho. What's, what's this? Oh, what? Uh, I never noticed this before. It, it says, for Fozzie, these might inspire some ideas for the tribute number... 
These are real letters. Oh, from Jim's fans. Oh boy. Oh, read some. Read, read some. it. Should I? Yeah. Okay. 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 Let's see. All right. See, it says, uh, "Dear Kermit, my cousin Diane has a pet frog, and she named him Kermit." <laughs> and he could say hi just like you. Aww, uh, isn't that sweet? Yeah. Really I feel very sorry that your best friend Jim died. Jim died? But we were just starting to get to know him. I was 13 years old when Jim Henson died. I still remember how I felt when I heard. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. This is probably only the fourth person I knew of who had died. Both grandparents had passed away and a friend at school had died two years previously. But death was a fairly alien concept to me even still. That I can equate Jim's death with that of beloved grandparents and a good friend gives you some idea of his importance and impact on my life, even then. It felt, in a lot of ways, that Jim was the architect of my childhood, or at the very least, many of the dreams I had then, and still have. Like many people, especially of my generation, I grew up with the sounds of the Muppets filling my home. Kermit's gentle, earnest tones, along with Miss Piggy's somewhat frightening but ultimately loving expressions of desperation, <coughs> were almost as familiar as my parents' voices. The frog is certainly taking a beating on this show. Yeah, it's hard to feel sorry for him. We take a beating every show. <laughs> Sesame Street introduced me to fun ways to remember my alphabet or learn to count. Big Bird and Snuffleupagus, though huge in scale, were endearing characters, making their way through their early years in a comfortably familiar way that the insecure young me could totally relate to. If Big Bird could be confused and sad about the death of Mr. Hooper, then I was reassured that I was also allowed to feel the same way when I lost my granddad. Everything's From the Muppet Show in Sesame Street to the wonderful Fraggle Rock, there was always a Henson creature on my TV screen as I was growing up. As real to me as any human character, I felt that maybe Moki, Red and Wembley Fraggle were really out there somewhere, under a lighthouse, dancing their cares away. I admit I was terrified of the huge gorgs and even the trash heap, but never scared enough to turn off. That was a genius that only Jim had. As an easily frightened child, it wouldn't take much to make me turn away from the screen. But somehow, Jim knew exactly how much of this scary stuff to put in. Just how frightening to make a character. It felt like he knew children as well as any child. And looking back, I can now see that he just never truly grew up. He was one of us. He understood us. So he could speak to us in a way that almost no other adult could. And he did it through puppets. Down at Fraggle Rock. Jim's boundless energy and incredible imagination soon led to the production of two very important films as far as my creative development goes. The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. I confess, The Dark Crystal was extremely close to being too scary for me. I was only five when it came out, but thankfully it was a few years before I got to watch it. And then it was on VHS in the comfort of my cousin's house. The vulture-like Skeksis could have been too much to deal with. Jim didn't shy away from showing the depth of their violence and cruelty. We just want to drain your living essence. But he also gave us the gentle, slow mystics, the cute pod people and the crazy little Fizzgig. There was just enough to comfort in this dark film, and a happy ending to ensure that children could sleep well after seeing it. Labyrinth was a bit of a life changer for me, and was the first inspiration for me wanting to work for the legendary Jim Henson Creature Shop, and ultimately led to my short-lived career in wig making. 
I think I just wanted to be even a small part of the magic making, a part of creating new and fantastical worlds that could speak to other children in the way that the worlds of the Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, the Storyteller, and Fraggle Rock spoke to me. Imagine a cold night and a dark night, a night like this one. The Storyteller was probably the clincher for me. If I didn't want to make puppets before then, then I did after that. The Storyteller was a series of half-hour masterpieces starring John Hurt as a titular storyteller and Jim's son Brian as his not actually all that faithful dog. What kind of dog? I don't know. A dog. Some kind of dog. Some kind of dog? Terrific story. Should I bark? Together they would tell fairy tales from across the world. The stories would be told through live action, puppetry, animation, animatronics. It was a feast for the eyes. And with Rachel Portman working on the music, it was also a treat for the ears. Of everything Jim created, this unique series is probably the thing that most affected me and my dreams for the future, and continues to fill me with genuine wonder. Dear Kermit, I hope you feel better. I will miss Jim Henson too. Hope this letter makes you feel better. I love you. Bridget Kerwin, Peabody, Massachusetts. You know, Mr. Henson was a very good, talented teacher. He will never be dead in my heart. Elizabeth Nicola Edelman, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. We will miss you, Jim Henson. Matt. Although adult life has stifled a lot of the dreams I held as a child and that were nurtured by the worlds of Jim's imagination, there is the child me who is still excited by the sound of Kermit's voice. I still get shivers when I hear the opening credits to the storyteller, and my heart still squeezes with fear and wonder when the Goblin King first appears in Sarah's window. You know, this Jim Henson may be gone, but well, maybe he's still here too, inside us, believing in us. If just one person believes in you... Jim died 28 years ago, and a lot of critics have suggested that the Henson Company is far stronger now than it ever was when Jim is alive. To them, I say, where did the worlds go? The Muppets live on through the loving care of uber-fan Jason Siegel and the wonderful Brett McKenzie, but Disney own them now. The Jim Henson Company focus on animations and children's series which, while maintaining the gentle heart of Jim's characters, just don't have that wow factor. Even the Hoobs, who I actually think are really great, are no match for the Fraggles. I often wonder how many worlds we were denied by the premature death of Jim Henson. He was never short of ideas, and at only 53, I feel sure he would have had many more to come. I still hold a deep sadness in me that Jim is no longer with us. It's a strange thing to grieve for someone you never met. But when they've shaped and coloured your childhood, your life, in such a profound way, it's impossible not to feel sad. Thankfully, you can only feel sad for so long when you think of Jim, because eventually you'll start to think of his work. And no matter what, when you do, you won't be able to help but smile. Thank you, Jim, for the magic, for the dreams, for the worlds. You once said that you wanted to leave the world a little better than you found it. Though I can't speak for the rest of the seven billion, you made my world a little better. Maybe even you, Maybe even you can be.
a good song. I knew you guys could do the tribute for Jim. I think, Rachel, I, and Andy, I think the difference is in us, and you're part of the call time knot, I think. That's, that's, the, that's the key to it here, right? And I like Fraggle Rock, and I like the Muppets, but I think I, I, I moved on and... I don't know, right, this is going to sound awful, but I so I moved on and left it, left it. <laughs> You've taken it with you. Yes. I mean, I, I moved on to sort of, you know, obsessing about Depeche Mode B-sides and things like that. <laughs> and that's, that, that, that's fine. But there's a philosophy here that's obviously, you know, it, it's stuck with you two. Um, but I've never been a fan of Miss Piggy, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> She's, great, does she scare great. me? Great. She does scare me. There's um, a bit in The Muppets Take Manhattan where she's on roller skates oh, yeah. through Central Park. Oh my God. Is that when her eyes go all funny? It's horrendous. Yeah. That's just really scary. It's that whole thing of puppets having feet. Again, like, <laughs> no, where's your controller? You're out of control. And she really scared me in that film. She really, I'm not a fan of Miss Piggy myself. I love Kermit. And I love Fozzie Bear. <laughs> mm. But yeah, Miss Piggy is a bit scary. I, I was would, a Gonzo fan. I oh, I love be, Gonzo. I would be Fozzie or, uh, is it Ralph or Rolf? Rolf. Rolf, Rolf of yeah. course, Rolf. Yeah. Rolf the dog. Yeah. He's awesome. So let's talk about Jennifer Connolly. Yes, let's. Um, <laughs> too much? What do you mean? <laughs> is she too much? No. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I must admit, I, enjoy, I, enjoy, I enjoyed watching it. And it's like, it, it, I, I, I must admit, because of the Bowie thing, I didn't even know, you know, to, to, to any, any other, anyone else involved in this really. <laughs> just, uh, it, it, it kind of, that's my, when we talk about, that's just that vision of the, of the cover. Like you, like you said earlier in the, uh, in the, in the news agents, getting the video out of the news agents, <laughs> yeah. arguing in the news agents. And, uh, yeah, so, right, so she's not too much. That's what you're saying. No, I it? think she's absolutely brilliant. I think she's absolutely fine. She's, she's a very good actress and we know that now because she's, yeah. has she been an Oscar winner now? Possibly, uh, or she's been nominated she win, at least. Uh, she had beautiful Mar- yeah, yeah, something like that. So we know she's a solid actress and she was only 14 in this film as well. And she had to do some really complex things, actually. Um, yeah, she had to act with puppets, which is really hard, mm-hmm. and be convincing and look afraid. But she also had to maintain a bit of hamminess because if she did it completely straight, yeah. then she was going to make David Bowie look really odd. <laughs> well, not that he didn't look odd anyway. <laughs> but you know, you can't be completely, you know, serious and straight in a film like this because you're playing with puppets. Yeah. So I think she she got it exactly right. I think mm. she played it right. Yeah, I think she came in for some pretty heavy criticism, she didn't she? Did. But I thought she was really good, particularly when she's interacting with the puppets actually, which mm. she said she found really hard to start with and then by the end she said they just they were there. Yeah. I think maybe some of the bits she struggles more is with uh, the bits where she's just sort of talking to herself as she's going around, but that's really hard to do. Mm. And it's not written as very kind of natural. I think there's one bit where she's been putting lipstick down and she goes, someone has been changing my marks. And it always always stands out as a really weirdly red line, but, uh, but that is really hard to do. And it's just like a little. Yeah. She's a, a teenager. Yeah. And she's annoyed. Yeah. And so she just comes across as quite stroppy quite a lot of the time. And it's not fair. And, you know. <laughs> and actually, she I think she pulls that off really well. What I really, one of the stories I heard about this was that she didn't really know how famous David was. She sort of knew of him. Yeah. But, you know, she was 14 and she liked different music at that age. And so her parents decided not to tell her just how big <laughs> he was. And so she did the entire film. And then at the end, they went, just, you know. Have a look him up. Yeah. <laughs> and then she went, oh. At, at this time, like, he was in like a bit of a creative slump albums wise, wasn't he? Because yeah. I think this, this came out off the back of the Tonight album, which mm. was very good. Yeah. And then Never Let Me Down was the album after that, which isn't very good either. No. And the Labyrinth, Labyrinth soundtrack in the middle yeah. is probably the better of the two. But yeah. I think 
that kind of overblown pomp of that era kind of fitted well, probably played a big part in getting him cast. Because, yeah. I mean, when Never, Never Let Me Down came out, he went on a tour called the Glass Spider Tour, where he abseiled down a giant <laughs> glass spider. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds like something out of a labyrinth, doesn't totally it? Totally does. Totally and it, does. it's like, as I mean... It sounds like a, just a, like a distraction from the music that you would just sort of poo-poo. But uh, I think if David Bowie had come to me at the time and said, I'm going to abseil down a, a glass spider, here's the album I'm promoting, and I'd listen to it, I'd have said, yeah, do it. <laughs> so for me, I think that was him trying to just remember that he was actually a human and not the Goblin King. So that was him trying to get his human side back again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's why he went a bit wobbly either side because he had to become his real self and then become the human again. But so that's how I just, that's how, why he goes weird. The interesting point. thing is he wasn't like the albums that were coming out at that time weren't very good, but the, the songs he was doing for soundtracks mm. were absolutely brilliant. Yeah. He did uh, This Is Not America, oh, yeah. uh, Absolute Beginners, which I think is one of his best songs. Yeah. Uh, when the wind blows, which isn't yeah. very well known, but is a great song, and then like underground off. Yeah. This was released as a single, wasn't it? Which yeah, I think I is really good. Yeah. Uh, so I think he was he was doing his best work for soundtracks at this time. Mm. So I made a note, dear, that I mean, we talk, you know, we, we talk about characters, and I made a note on it that talks about plot, and I've just simply written the word bananas next to it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's about bananas. Um, I think it's well, apparently <laughs> there was about. 25 treatments and scripts drafted for it across three years and (laughs) it could have been a real patchwork botch job but i think it it comes across as as if that's intentional in the film because the nature of the labyrinth is there's a different surprise around every corner so these sketches kind of build up into a whole and there is a through line as well there's this through line of this this symbolism of the transition from girlhood into womanhood and that ties it all together so for such a, a bumpy production, I think it it's come out as quite a coherent piece. I totally agree. And it's strange. And it also lets you watch it in different ways as well. Yeah. Obviously, when I was a kid and watched it, it was an adventure. Yeah. You take it, it all about, face It was value. about a girl getting her brother back. Yeah. That was it. And as you get a little bit older, as you get to her age, then you're thinking, oh, quite like that Goblin King. And so, you know, <laughs> why did she go with him? And then eventually then you get older still and then you start to really look at it. And there's things that you notice, like you were saying about everything going on in the, in the background quite a lot. The junk lady, I was really focusing on this time. I love the junk yeah. lady. She's quite scary. And that voice is quite, Wah! but I hadn't noticed until really recently that there are many other junk ladies in the junkyard. She's not the only one there. They're all moving about in the background. And then when she goes into her room, which you think is her bedroom, and then the old lady comes through the door and you think, oh my God, it's not a dream. Um, and then she starts piling the things onto Sarah. And I'm thinking, hang on. So were you one of these people? Were you a, were you a labyrinth runner? Because now you've got all your stuff on your back and you were one that didn't escape. And how many others are in that junkyard? And so my mind started to go really, oh my goodness, this has been going on for forever. You know, he's been stealing children. All the goblins we used to be children and all the junk ladies are the ones that never got them back. And so there's so many ways you can look at it. There's so many ways. There was a novelization. This is one of my great sob stories is that <laughs> I, I had it when I was about 12 and I gave it to a friend to borrow. Oh, no. And I never got it back and it's out of print. But I know when I read it, I just about remember some of the bits in it and there was so much more to it. So much more to it. I mean, it's a novelization. She probably just ran with some of her own ideas. But it could be really deep. It could be a really deeply looked at thing because there's a lot in there that's really quite dark and quite adult. And it is a bit bananas as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's justified. <laughs> when, you, uh, when you lend stuff out, 
I suppose you, you think, well, you don't really get that. But is there, is there, have you got things now that you've borrowed off people from, from that, that sort of time? I'm thinking back to Happy Mondays records. That I, can say, <laughs> I can say quite clearly to James Bonnet, sorry, I've still got them. <laughs> I've actually got some of your stuff in my bag, right? <laughs> I always know you'll bring them back eventually. It's fine. And, of course, in this very room, I've still got your Howard and Maud DVD. <laughs> I don't even think we've got a DVD player. Although, actually, I've got a laptop in front of me. I could watch it on that, couldn't there I? There you go. Uh, which, how long have we been doing spoiler now? Because you gave, you gave me that when we very first started. Yeah, right, okay. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, I'm going, I'm going a bit red here. Uh, okay, think of a question, Paul, very quickly. Move on. Um, so, um, I mean, well, let's, let's talk about the ending. <laughs> about this ending at all. I, everyone appears in their room for a party. And what... I, think they, I mean, their parents are back. It, what? This ending yeah. only works if you're watching it in the metaphorical sense, because. But for me, they're coming back into into reality. You know, it's like Dorothy's back. Dorothy's back in Kansas or yeah. wherever. No, is it Dorothy that goes to Kansas? Dorothy lives in Kansas. Dorothy yeah. lives in Kansas. She comes yeah. back to Kansas. Yeah. Who was the one who went down the rabbit hole? That's Alice. Alice, Alice of course. Yeah. Right. Okay. So <laughs> these people, but they don't. They come back into reality when they come. She, she comes. Well, when they. I mean, she, she, she does. The effects but... of this poisoned apple have worn off. By now. <laughs> and when I say poisoned, I think we all know mean drugged up, right? <laughs> well, the way the way I've taken it is that the whole experience of her going through the labyrinth is a passage from being a spoiled child. To that, those first stirrings of womanhood, and she rejects. So, in rejecting the power of the Goblin King, rejecting this fantasy world that she's lived in as a child, she's embracing womanhood, but she still wants to keep that an element of that. So, that when they say, "If you ever need us," and she says, "I do need you. Some part of me needs you now and again," mm. that shows that she she'll still keep that that part of her childhood within her but she's moving on with her life as yep. a woman i totally see it that way as well so are we, saying, are we are we actually saying that this didn't happen this is a this is a i know this is a, right i know this is a fantasy don't get me wrong no, 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 no. all right okay i read it completely no i was thinking there's, well there's no wrong answer because no. no. it's however you thinking, see it well, if, if she has moved on in that why are they still jigging about in a room it should be just like <laughs> because you know. well the key to that is is that me and Rachel still love Labyrinth, mm. so that's that's our way of still having a party with the that's goblins it. whenever we want. Yeah, but we've also accepted our adult responsibilities. Mm. Sort that's of. A shame. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and is that playful side? Because this is the message that Jim, I'm sure, would want to get across: is that it's okay to grow up, but don't leave it all behind. You know, get rid of the trappings of childhood, all your books and your and your unrealistic expectations and everything else, and be aware that life isn't fair. And be aware that not everything's a piece of cake and know that friends are the most important things and, and the material things don't count. But he would always be the one that would say, but make sure you keep playing. He was Sarah in a way because he did move on and he was an adult and he had children, but he still played and he still made beautiful things and, and stretched his imagination. And so, yeah, for me, it's a bit of a metaphor for that. But the good thing is that the party ending, notwithstanding, <laughs> you can just take it completely at face value yeah, that course. she does go in and and you get people who sniffy about it and say oh no you you must recognize the symbolism i saw someone online <laughs> uh, someone online online you say yeah <laughs> this will be good uh, who had who had said uh, written a thing saying oh i can't believe everyone hasn't realized that this this is a film about the a young girl's sexual maturity <laughs> and then someone underneath had replied uh 
that being the case, please explain what the scene with the talking knockers represents. (laughs) 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 I'm going to make a a note here. Invite goblins (laughs) in for a shindig (laughs) once in a while. Okay. Is that in your calendar? Yep. Excellent. <laughs> so another question I've got. <laughs> I, know, I, lo- I, know I love I love playing the layman. I love it. I mean, some might say it comes very naturally. Uh, but so, right, bear with me. The goblins, right? The goblins themselves, once Jareth's gone, they're all having a shindig, but they were quite... Are we, were they just led astray? That's what I'm saying. Are, they, are we saying that goblins themselves are good? So you're saying the goblins are previously babies. I think they're children. Yeah. But they've right. never grown up. Well, okay. look at the way they behave. Yeah, yeah. And, and they never hurt anybody really. They're very ridiculous. In that battle in the, in the goblin city at the end, nobody, there's no blood drawn. There's no, nobody dies apart mm. from the one that gets squished by a rock, but that's, <laughs> that's Ludo's fault. Mm. Um, but, you know, they, and the humongous, you know, the big steel robot that comes out the door. Yeah, he's, he's swishing his axe about, but he's a pretty bad aim. <laughs> so they're just playing. I always feel like the goblins are playing. They don't quite realise yeah. the seriousness of what's going on. Also, Bowie's got such a hold over him, hasn't he? Cause yeah, Because like totally. he has with Hoggle, he makes yeah. him, uh, yeah, he well, makes him give her that peach, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. It's that bog of eternal stench, isn't That's it? That's the bit we used to fast forward on when kids, the bit where she eats the peach. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, too boring. Well, the it's boring too serious. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, like that's the bit that. that I slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Look at his face there. <laughs> <laughs> and so, more questions, right? So, I, I realise, I realise there will be listeners going, oh, you know, obviously, this is obvious, but there'll be few people saying right okay yeah i'm with him on this i'm i'm there'll be people that disagreeing with us no they might be wrong so <laughs> could jareth ever return and i'm thinking in a in a way like uh, lord of the rings where there's just you know his spirits around somewhere could he ever be summoned back what i'm saying is is there going to be a sequel well they're working on a sequel it's not a reboot it is yeah. a sequel but there's no David. Didn't they say that <laughs> it's not necessarily like a seat? It's it's in the same world yeah. as Labyrinth. So yeah. the Goblin King won't necessarily play a part. They'd better not. It, it depends. Is he in... You see, I'm going to ask some questions there. <laughs> oh, in, no, they're all rejected. Like <laughs> in rejecting his power... Does that mean he, he no longer has power over that realm? That realm doesn't exist, does it? I've already answered this myself. I'm tying myself in <laughs> metaphorical knots. Uh, like, that is it's... usually my job here. Come <laughs> on. Well, he's an owl now, right? Because so. <laughs> oh, yeah. he's outside and he flies away. This oh, was his job, really, to get her to where she was at the end. That was actually his ah, role. Because same. he says, you know, I'm tired of living up to your expectations of me. Because, you know, he turns the world upside down. And it's all to lead her to being grown up and being able to do that mm. on her own. And actually, although by the end he's thinking, oh, I won't mind just sticking around. I'm quite enjoying this. But she says no. I think the bit where he says, do as I say and I will be your slave. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, to me, it, it sounded almost overtly sexual when yeah. I watched it this time. But I don't think it, it's it's more kind of, so you, you accept the responsibilities of adulthood. Yeah. And then the possibilities of adulthood are at your disposal. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's funny you should say about the sexual um, thing because 
You know how much I love the uh, parental guidance on the Internet Movie Database? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I printed it all out because it's brilliant. But um, I'm not going to read it all out. But there's a bit under sex and nudity. This is for Labyrinth, right? <laughs> sex and nudity. And of course they mentioned David Bowie's costumes. All, <laughs> that they all include tights. This is how they word it. Over a very prominent codpiece, making the contours of his genitalia rather prominent as well in numerous scenes throughout the movie. Oh, isn't it as well? It? Oh, I, my God, I used to have yeah. a theory that he'd borrowed guns on. <laughs> Could well have done. But yeah, it says um, under the sex and nudity bit, it says, um, being, this interested me because I don't, I don't know where they got this from. Being indicated to be modelled after one of Sarah's biological mother's old flames, and then in brackets, for whom she ultimately abandoned Sarah and her father. We're not told that in the film, no. so that's complete. I don't know where they've got that from. Anyway, <laughs> Jareth the Goblin King is stated to be in love with the underage pubescent Sarah and his romantic desire for her is heavily implied not to be entirely unrequited. In one dream sequence, she and he have a slow dance with each other at a rather decadent masquerade ball. And near the end, as he's making one final appeal to her, some of the things he says are highly reminiscent of sexual domination and submission fantasies. Mm. I was like, okay, yeah, thanks okay. for the parental guidance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think your child's going to pick up on that. Was there anything in there about hoggle weeing? Yes, that was the other thing. Hoggle, when first introduced, <laughs> is shown urinating into a pool while viewed from his backside. That was <laughs> dead exciting. When I was a kid, Like there was less kind of toilet humour and kid stuff when I was a kid. And so that was like... Yeah. Second only to the moment where the seagull swears in Watership Down <laughs> for excitement. He's peeing, he's peeing into a pool. <laughs> One thing I saw on the IMDb trivia, which jogged my memory actually, was that you know the You Remind Me of the Babe, what babe yeah. dialogue? That is actually a parody of something from a, an old Cary Grant film oh. called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, where uh, he says, You remind me of the man. And she says, What man? The man oh. with the power, the power of hoodoo. Ah. Hoodoo you do. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? You remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What Good power? morning. Power hmm? Greetings, greetings. And I've actually seen this film, and but I knew that so well from Labyrinth that my brain did all these funny <laughs> things, so I was watching it, and I was like... Hang on a minute, how have they done a labyrinth reference like <laughs> decades before the film came out? Time travel. <laughs> See, now all you've got is me spinning around in that salt and pepper lyric. I don't know how you do the voodoo that you do. <laughs> salt and pepper, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course it was. Right. <laughs> but as we're talking, uh, of course, about, about the ending and that, that for me, obviously, some of the, 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 the graphics and the effects in this film, particularly the jumping up, bouncing up and down of the baby leave a touch to be desired and i think even yes. at that even at that point yeah particularly as george lucas is involved yeah so you think hang on but that too many special effects wouldn't obviously wouldn't have worked so it's fine and that's okay but what i do think worked exceptionally well and they must have put a lot of work into it, is the final scene oh, of the yeah. labyrinth in the stairs in the center of the castle yeah um and, and you can see and i do remember those those making off parts that say wow you know mm. well, really well done it really, really works and that for me still holds up there's nothing yeah you know, you know I, I'm, I'm looking for problems <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a fantastic scene i think the places where it goes a bit ugh, is in the compositing when the green screening yeah um, mm -hmm. like the fireys for example um they're fine but Sarah's hair mm -hmm. just disappears into the ether because yeah. it's just not the right colour. Yeah. So, I mean, if they did it now, they'd easily do that. Apparently, no trouble. Jim Henson wasn't happy with that, but mm. he thought the puppetry in the scene was yeah. good enough to yeah. to keep hold of. So. Which it was. Yeah. You know, the puppetry was really good. And they, it was, I mean, it used to gross me out. But I, <laughs> I when he pulls his eyeballs out and then eats them oh, and then they put back into I his eyeballs. That, it's yeah, fantastic. That's quite creepy. But 
gross. And then when somebody's <laughs> tapping their leg and it just sort of falls off. Yeah. <laughs> it just, when, when you're a kid, you just think that's hilarious, really. But it, I think maybe it does work better if you, if you saw it as a child. Because that's, it's those things that make you laugh. There's the computer-generated owl as well, isn't there? Yes, Which looks yeah. dodgy now. Or, well, it doesn't look terrible, but yeah. it looks dated. It but does. that was incredibly high-tech then, wasn't it? Hell yeah. Yeah, it was the first attempt at a naturally realistic anything with yeah. CG. And I think they did really well. Yeah. Now it just looks kind of stylized rather yeah, than bad. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they get away with it. It's like, here's the Goblin King. He's allowed to look a bit weird as now. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll forego that. Okay, right. I think we're moving on to the time where we give a verdict and a rating. So, are we saying that this is Bowie's golden years? Oh, or is it the tin machine of stench? <laughs> yeah, you don't even answer. I quite don't. like tin machines. Oh, oh, come on. So we're giving no, the cartoon no, leeway no, now, no, no, just because no, he's no, a goblin not, king. I'm not, having it. I'm not having it. I love golden years. That's a great walking to work song, I have to say. It's not quite like that. That's a good version. like that, honestly. Okay, now we have been away. Some of the not nice things in life happened to a number of the spoiler team over the last six months. So we're sorry that we weren't around, but being back is helping some of those things for us. And we're so grateful that you keep on listening in those numbers that you are. And it continues to astonish you. So thank you to Johnny, Andy, Rachel, all at Siren FM who are continuing to support us here. Uh, and we wish you well. And we're going to dedicate this to Stu, Podge and Len. Now best now to leave you with the always genial Andy Goulding. When David Bowie died, it was the dead of winter and the world still seemed an unforgiving New Year hinterland. With dormant Christmas lights still warm, encroachment by the grindstone made days feel as abrasive and as fragmented as limestone. A fragile nation, bleary-eyed, watched as the news unfurled. The Goblin King had abdicated from the mortal world. And as they watched the breakfast news replay his golden years, a million bowls of cornflakes were diluted by their tears. That year, as coats were buttoned high in readiness for snow, I found myself abruptly without anywhere to go. When told on my return to work that I'd been made redundant, my sense of New Year spirit wasn't what you'd call abundant. But while the call of duvets and self-pity was insistent, the rumble in my stomach was becoming more persistent. For daily bread's essential even for the atheistic, and with my cupboards empty, it was time to get realistic. So with my iPod blaring out a chorus of let's dance, I donned my hat and gloves and wished for thermal underpants. Reluctantly I ventured out into the snow-capped town, but two-thirds of the way there it was really coming down. And half-blind in the torrent, I was thus forced to retire to the safety of the local and its cosy open fire. And with the jukebox rigged to play the best of David Bowie, it seemed the ideal refuge from a day so cruel and snowy. I sat down with a drink and disengaged my tired brain, revelled in the thin white duke and loved a lad insane, raised a glass to Major Tom, then tapped a toe to Starman, and sang to Rebel Rebel, harmonising with the barman. The different guises that made up this glorious career were proof that chicha changes need not be a source of fear, so huddling closer to the fire, I settled in the bar, kicked off my shoes and thought of spring, and Ziggy played guitar. B.
been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. No one can blame you for walking away. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us, share links to our show, or write us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're watching the entire first series of Mackenzie Crook's BBC4 sitcom, Detectorists. What you got? Ring pull. 83 Tizer. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. You say that so often. I wonder what your basis for comparison is. Oh,